I walked up these sweeping stairs to the cafeteria and she was sitting there and she stood up and we embraced each other and just wept. And she said she hadn't come over earlier because she had never been to the West and she was afraid. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. Susan Morrison is Professor of English at Texas State University. In the late 1980s, she taught in Rostock in the former GDR and then lived in West Berlin, but frequently crossed back to the East to teach and meet friends. In this episode, we talk to her about her experiences and her impression of the two Germanys in 1989. During her time in Rostock, Susan got into trouble with the authorities over a bulletin board known as the Wall. The way she was censured by senior academics in the GDR sheds a valuable light on how people live within the strict system of control by using humour and compromise. Susan also retrieved her personal Stasi file and talks about how they tracked and monitored her during her time in the GDR. If you are enjoying the podcast, please leave a written review in Apple Podcasts or share us on social media by telling your friends you can really help us grow the number of listeners. And if you can spare it, I'm asking listeners to contribute at least three US dollars per month to help keep us on the air. Larger amounts are always welcome. Plus, you can get a sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a monthly financial supporter, and you bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. James, our co-host, is the interviewer for this episode as we welcome Susan to our Cold War Conversation. I was a graduate student in the 1980s at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island. And Brown was one of two universities in the United States, the other being The Ohio State University, I believe, or Kent State. And the university in Ohio had an exchange program with a university in East Germany, in the German Democratic Republic or the GDR. And Brown University had an exchange with the Wilhelm Pieck Universität Rostock um, on the Baltic. And Wilhelm Pieck was a communist hero, so it was named for him. It's now called the University of Rostock. And our charge as graduate students who knew German and English, of course, was to go over to Rostock and teach language classes with students there, university students, mainly undergraduates, and to conduct conversation classes with them. They were studying English and were preparing to teach English at the gymnasium or high school level. And even though it was called an exchange program, of course, it wasn't exactly an exchange program. Very few East Germans came over to Brown University. A few did in the beginning when the program was first started um, in the 70s. They tended to be male. Um, and after one or two stayed, I believe, um, the program 
uh, really only chose men with wives and children who stayed back in East Germany in order to prevent anyone from staying in the United States. So although it wasn't a quote unquote exchange program, it wasn't really exactly an exchange program in the way that we think of it today. And so about five of us, led by um, Professor Duncan Smith, who helped found the program in the German uh, department, went over to Rostock late in August and early September of 1985. And we went there as well. We were um, meeting students from Bradford University in the north of England, and they too were coming over to teach language classes. So it was really um, Americans, Brits, and then of course, East Germans. The East German head of the program, Horst Turner, was professor in the um, English department there, the Anglistic department, and he and Duncan headed up the program um, every summer. And uh, we would stay for about three weeks and uh, engage with the students. We lived in the dorms. We taught conversation classes. We would go into the Kista, it was called. It was like a little bar in the, um, the high rise that we were living in, the dorm building. Um, we would go there at night and drink and there would be music performances or, or funny plays people would put on. So it was really quite a engaging experience in every possible way. We did some field trips to local towns and altogether it was really, um, fun. You know, I was, uh, 25 years, 26 years old and I was in a new country. I have to say though, Although I had lived in Germany before, I lived for a year in Munich, in Bavaria, which is a very different place than Rostock in the north of Germany, in East Germany. I knew very little going over about East Germany. And I had been told by Horst Turner, the East German head of the program, um, to um, just act like I am an American. Um, and he emphasize this when I was given a special task as part of the program. In addition to giving some lectures, each uh, teacher had to give one lecture. Mine was on universities in the United States. Each person had a special task, and I was made the editor of the wall newspaper, the Wandzeitung, which basically was a bulletin board and students would write articles for me, and then we'd thumbtack them up or staple them up onto this bulletin board. And the purpose of it was for students to practice writing English. And their English was already quite good, but this gave them, gave them extra um, experience in uh, writing English, and they could write on various topics. They could write serious essays. They could write something funny. And it was really just to give them experience. There was no uh, forethought on my part about assigning a particular topic. So I was going to say, were you given any guidance on what could be put up on this bulletin board, what was allowable? I was told by Horst, the East German head, to treat it just like an American newspaper. Which is going to bring it naturally, I would have thought, into some sort of conflict with uh, <laughs> the rather more conservative states of the GDR, no? Yes, I don't. I don't think he um, expected um, 
to have happen what happened, which I'll explain. But no, and I had been the editor of my high school newspaper. And um, so I knew a little bit about this sort of thing. But really, I was just grateful for any student who had an idea for something to write. I would then type it up on a German typewriter. And any uh, anyone who's been on a German typewriter who's an English speaker will know what I'm saying when it's very annoying because a couple of the letters are switched in where they are. And so you're constantly correcting yourself because you're using the wrong key. Um, but anyway, it was all good fun for a while. I had two young women in particular um, who are now dear friends of mine. In fact, most of my best German friends are from this program. Um, most of them East German, one's a Brit. And uh, the students, um, uh, these two young women, uh, I'll call them Angela and Nelly, uh, were the ones who wrote most of the articles for me. They also happened to be two people who had studied in Soviet Georgia for uh, a year and so they were going to teach not only English, but Russian on the gymnasium level. And of course, Russian was the language that every East German had to learn in school because it was part of the, um, you know, part of the Soviet bloc. So um, they were really trilingual, Russian, English, and German. And so Angela and Nelly wrote me articles. And Angela um, one day said, I've written a two-part article um, for the newspaper, um, one could be put up one day and one the next. And I said, oh, that's great. And uh, I said, what is it called? And the article was called Girls in the SU, SU, the Soviet Union. And when she handed it over to me, she said, some people may not like this. And I was so American. I said, that's okay. If someone doesn't write the article, they can write a letter to the editor and we can put up the letter to the editor. Um, did, of course. Did you, did, you, did you know at this point that you were perhaps being put up to fall? Um, uh, no, I mean, I really was just genuine. I, I, I really thought that if someone was upset with this, that we could put up um, – a letter to the editor. And just think about it. It was, there were maybe several dozen people involved with the program between the teachers and the students. It wasn't that many people. And I was so naive or innocent. I thought, who really cares about what's being put up on this wall newspaper, except for the people involved with the program? Of course, I learned differently very rapidly. And this first article, that um, Angela wrote, Girls in the Soviet Union, was about so-called, quote-unquote, good girls in the Soviet Union. And I'm exaggerating slightly, but basically what she was saying was that good girls in the Soviet Union were ones who didn't think, were very superficial, who got married young and had children. And then the second article, which was never put up, was on, quote-unquote, bad girls in the Soviet Union, basically people who thought, who disagreed with the government, and so on. But I posted this 
story as I did every morning. I put up the news stories on the wall newspaper board. It was anonymous. Her name was not there, but I'm sure that the people in charge could have figured out who wrote it very easily. And, uh, and so I posted girls in the uh, Soviet Union. And within an hour, I was called into a conference with the American head of the program and the East German head of the program. And they told me that it had to come down, that it was going to be very problematic um, to have this uh, article um, displayed. And the entire program, the exchange program, was um, at stake. Were they more worried for themselves and the success of the program, or were they warning you? Was it really sort of a self-defense mechanism by them? I think they were more worried about the program and themselves in some ways. Um, I don't think they thought I was being subversive in any way. Um, But um, the East German actually said to me that the program is fragile and anti-Soviet articles are dangerous. Um, And he, he also said, no one's blaming you, but this has to come down. And I remember... I cried because I was worried about um, my student. I was afraid that there would be retaliation against her. Um, And in fact, later I heard from her that um, she and the other girl who wrote for me um, did have to do two weeks of um, sort of, uh, I don't want to call it brainwashing work, but they had to do a program to teach them to act like better citizens, which of course didn't take in their case. But um, uh, so there was some repercussion later, although they never regretted doing this program or, or writing these articles. And was this experience of bumping into the authorities typical of your time in East Germany or atypical? Did you, when we talked earlier about perhaps calling this episode, finding the humanity in the GDR, did you enjoy your time there? Um, You know, it's really complex. Um, Later, maybe we'll talk about my Stasi file, my secret police file. So yes, I did bump up against authorities um, at various times. Um, But I also, in retrospect, I understand uh, the desire to keep the program going on the part of the two heads. Um, The East German head, Horst, said there's no censorship in East Germany, which, of course, is blatantly false. But he said there's no um, censorship in East Germany, but we want uh, these students to think constructively, that is to say, pro-Soviet. and he later on invited me back to Rostock. So it wasn't as though it was the end of my um, career, so to speak, in visiting the university. Um, I think the biggest immediate effect it had on me was making me incredibly paranoid, which probably should have been my state from the start, but I really went in totally open and naive and um in terms of finding the humanity in the GDR, really the humanity is always to be found with the people. And for me, these students were my connection with the humanity in the GDR. They were 20-something students, very much like me. Um, Yes, they had different experiences because they grew up um, in a repressive society. But, you know, we laughed, we joked, 
Um, and we were also paranoid together. Um, in fact, this, this um, conference with the two heads of the program, when I had to take the article down, that was in the morning. And that afternoon, I went with Angela and we went to a cafe where we could talk. And she thought it was best to go to a cafe because it would be difficult for anyone to hear us speak openly there because of the noise, just the natural ambient noise in a cafe. There were two people sitting at a table near us that she thought might be observing us, who might have been following us. Um, and basically, um, talking to her, she revealed to me more about the kind of um, state that average everyday East Germans had to live in, which I encountered, of course, for the first time that morning in a rather dramatic way. Um, but people had to be very careful about um, what they wrote or said publicly. Privately, of course, people said all sorts of things um, and were quite open, at least with me. I think because I was an American and they could tell I was very good-willed, um, they weren't worried about me betraying them or anything like that. Um, so it did alter my, this incident did alter my view of East Germany dramatically. But even the a horse, the um, head of the program, when I returned from the cafe with Angela, he had left a piece of paper in my typewriter, the typewriter with which, which I used to type up that article. And it was a quote unquote funny note he left for me. And he had typed, this typewriter has been censored. Do not use the letter U, S, and R. <laughs> referencing of course the USSR I mean so he did have a sense of humor and um later um and I'm sure we'll talk about this um I um, I received my Stasi file in the years after the Berlin Wall came down and you could apply to get your Stasi file and this incident was referenced in the two by the two people who were writing me up and it turned out that he was one of the people who was um, observing me. He was the, one of the collaborators with the Stasi writing up a report on me. I shouldn't be, have been surprised to hear that because he was a high-level professor at an East German university, and virtually everyone um, belonged to the party in order to have a position like that. Um, and even though... He reported on me, even though I had to take down this article. He still invited me back to East Germany to teach. Um, and, you know, one can speculate as to why. But I think, um, you know, people are complex. They're not all, you know, good or bad. So he may have been acting um, in a repressive way, but I think... Um, uh, he also wanted his students genuinely to learn, but he had to play by the rules. Um, so after it this also point... That, it sounds also that he's learning to live within the confines of the system. Exactly, precisely. Something he has to say versus something he wants to say, and hence the notes left in the typewriter, the very clever but, note left in the typewriter. Yes, exactly, precisely. Um and I had to learn as well how to work within the system. And so after this point, 
my students wrote really just trivial things. So we had personals ads, very funny things like, uh, you know, Lonely Hearts ads. It enabled them to practice their English, but it was not controversial. Sexual things really didn't function controversially. I mean, I've read um, that sometimes people felt the East German government um, promoted or allowed nude bathing, say, or uh, sexual innuendo because that was quote unquote innocent or not as dangerous as say something political like criticizing the Soviet Union obviously is problematic. There was another article one of my students wrote that also um, was uh, disapproved of called the fight against alcoholism in the USSR. Obviously the USSR did not want to have articles uh, uh, pointing out that there was a deep problem with alcoholism in their own country. So there were some articles that um, were disapproved of, and then I just learned uh, to shift into a different register. But this didn't mean um, that privately we didn't talk about such things. Privately we did. And also in our discussion classes, I was just looking at my diary, and we were discussing everything from Watergate to the political system in the GDR, GDR, to TV shows in the United States that were very popular at the time, including Hill Street Blues and Dynasty. So we really covered a huge range of topics in our discussion classes. Um, and then even more privately in cafes or walks, of course, one could be quite open. And did you find that after the event with the director of the course that when you returned back to dorm life and to the bar that you were a little more wary and cagey about what you said yes in fact um i became so paranoid i was convinced that our room was bugged i was sharing a dorm room with another american from brown university amy and it's possible it was bugged i have no idea there's no reference to that though in um my file my stasi file and so how long were you in Rostock overall? This initial visit in 1985, I was there for three weeks. And then you went back again a little bit later on. That's correct. So I was a graduate student at Brown in comparative literature. I started in 1984 and I finished my PhD in 1991. And in between, I, uh, in between this visit to Rostock, and my finishing my PhD, I applied for a grant through the DAD or the Deutsche Akademische Austauschdienst, which is an organization rather like the Fulbright that gives out fellowships um, to students uh, to work on their dissertations in Germany. And I had applied for one and I received it and was paid by them from 1988 to 1989 to study at the Freie Universität or the FU, the uh, Free University in West Berlin, starting in the fall of 88. And so that was, I was excited about that, needless to say. But before I went back to Germany, before I went back to uh, Berlin, I um, ran into Horst Hohner, the head of the Rostock program, the East German head of the program. It was spring of 1988 before I was to leave a few months later. 
and he saw me, he hailed me very warmly, and I sat with him. And it turned out he was going on sabbatical in the fall, and he asked me if I would like to teach for him in Rostock. Huh. This was meeting him in the U.S.? Yes, meeting him in Providence, Rhode Island. He he was able to travel through this connection with Brown because he was over 60. He was a, a lauded professor in East Germany. He wasn't going to defect or anything like that. Um, he was a safe person to travel. So um, he could travel quite freely to the West and did to conferences. He was a well-known Shelley scholar. Um, and I was... Uh, quite um, surprised and pleased um, that he asked me to teach for him in the fall. But I, looking back, I should have immediately said, yes, I'll teach for you. But I did have this fellowship. I was supposed to work on my dissertation at the Free University. So um, I negotiated with him and he agreed that I could do shorter term teaching junkets, so to speak, I would teach master's students uh, a couple of times for a week at a time and then go back to West Berlin where I could work on my dissertation. So I could sort of um, still work on my dissertation, but I could periodically go over to Rostock and teach students there. And uh, he was happy with this solution and I was as well. And so I went to West Berlin where I lived from 1988 to 1990. Although I had the fellowship only for a year, needless to say, by the time I was supposed to leave in the summer of 1989, things were pretty exciting in um, East Germany and I didn't want to leave. And so um, I stayed a year longer in West Berlin and traveling back to um, East Germany. So I ended up being there for two years altogether from the fall of 1988 through the summer of 1990. And in the fall of 88, I went to Rostock um, a couple of times to teach literary theory to master's students. It was a really fun experience. Um, and when you travel like that um, in uh, the former East Germany, you were given someone called a betreuer. He was kind of like my handler. And basically, he was the person who would make sure I got my tickets to arrive. I had the correct visa. He met me at the station. He made sure I had things to do when I wasn't teaching and so on. So it was really, you know, it was very nice. He was a very pleasant person. Um, and uh, But I also was teaching literary theory, everything from uh, Marxist theory, which of course went over very well, uh, to <laughs> feminist theory. Um, and we focused, among other things, on African-American literature, which was extremely popular in East Germany, I think in part because of the um, socialist um, uh, implications of a system like capitalism that oppresses um, various people, including people of color and people with um, uh, uh, economically deprived people. So this, this East Germany actually had a lot of translations of um, Chicano and Chicanx literature at an early um, a, uh, stage. And also um, uh, Toni Morrison, for example, was taught regularly in classes there, Alice Walker. S um, and so that was uh, uh, 
that was a very good thing to to know about um, the the way literature was taught there. They were quite sophisticated, in other words. So, so as a, as a professor of lit- uh, comparative literature, what book would you recommend that we read um, from a an author from the GDR? Um, to learn about East Germany. Yes. Yeah. Um, well, when I've I've taken students over um, to uh, on exchange programs, one book that I teach is called Stasi Land. Um, yes. By by I think it's Anna Fundu. It's it's a really a kind of oral history with various people in East Germany. I think that's a very good book. Um, I also think. Um, uh, uh, Books by um, people like um, Imtra- Imtraud Morgner is an interesting writer as well, um, who I think has been translated into English. Um, Christa Wolf, of course, is one of the most famous, but she's complicated too because um, she also reported to the Stasi for a time. And so uh, it's, it's a really a tricky situation to decide who might one read because, um, you know, who actually, uh, I don't want to say sold out, but some people were seen as selling out to the government. Um, but that's one of the things I really discovered there. Uh, what I was referring to before what we talked about the humanity and the GDR, not everyone was totally evil. Um, even the, Horst, I learned later, he had published his memoir. He had spent a number of years in a a Russian prisoner of war camp after World War II. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War Uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. That kind of experience must totally change you so that you want to live in a relatively safe, easier way. And if it meant reporting on someone, well, then um, I presume that's why he he reported on me. And he even downplayed um, the newspaper, the wall newspaper incident in his writing up of the, um, of what happened. Um, In a sense, of course, to protect himself, but also perhaps to protect me, I don't know. Um, So he couched it in terms that made, that um, mitigated some of the inflammatory possible inflammatory nature of criticizing the Soviet Union. But perhaps once you found yourself in a prisoner of war camp in the Soviet Union, that really does give you a measure of relative importance 
uh, for all other issues. Exactly. Precisely. So I, I only wish I could have talked to him before he died um, to interview him because I had, I really don't have ill will toward him at all. Um, you know, most people, if they re- reported on, obviously um, are angry about it. Um, but I, I wanted to try to understand his perspective. Now, I was in a very unusual position as a United States citizen. Obviously, an East German would not be as um, uh, perhaps uh, uh, open to seeing his point of view, because I could leave at any time. Even if I was reported on, it wasn't as though I had to um, uh, live for the rest of my life because that's what people thought they, that uh, the wall would stay up for their entire lives. Um, I, I didn't have to live under a repressive government for the course of my life. And if somebody reported on me, well, in a sense, so what? I could leave and go back to the United States. The worst that would happen to me is being kicked out of the country, which, of course, I didn't want to have happen. But that's not as bad as what happened to some people who were, of course, shot trying to leave or tortured and, and um, were deprived education or other things as quote unquote, punishments for uh, not thinking the way the government wanted them to think. So I was in a really privileged position, and I realized that. Now, you did mention, just leaping ahead of uh, a few years, that you did have a friend who tried to escape um, in sort of 88, a few months before the wall came down. And it ended up being bought by West Germany? That's correct. It was the boyfriend um, of one of my uh, friends, and he tried to escape um, uh, either late 87 or early 88, was caught and was put in prison. What typically would happen uh, with people who tried to escape, and you know, of course the vast majority were caught or and didn't succeed in their attempts, um, and of course, a, a number were killed as well. Um, they would be put in prison, um, and then eventually, West Germany would "quote unquote" buy them because they were seen as citizens of West Germany. All East Germans were considered that way, and so they were really just buying their own citizens. Um, and it would take, typically, I think, um, up to a year or two in order to have this process go through. The East German government agreed to basically selling their own citizens um, in order to get, well, get rid of troublesome elements, people who didn't want to be there, and also to get hard Western currency. And so presumably that when he got to West Germany, he was then free yes. to do whatever he wanted. That's correct. And the the tragedy in his case is he was re- bought by the West German government and released only a few months before the wall came down. Not good time. But from your point of view, you find yourself in West Berlin at one of its key moments in history. To witness, you know, what many of us wish we had seen. Yes. So, so I was living in West Berlin in an area called Kreuzberg 61. Those who know Berlin know where this is. It's uh, very close to the wall near Checkpoint Charlie, uh, a few hundred meters away, really. Um, and uh, I uh, not only would I go over to Rostock to teach periodically, 
Um, I also had West Berlin residency. So because I was living there, I had a special identity identity card, which allowed me to travel over to East Germany as a West Berlin citizen, so to speak, or resident. And um, rather um, than the usual uh, foreigners crossing the border to see East Berlin and taking in the sights and then coming back um, before the border closed in the evening, I was allowed through this special ID, me and many other people, wasn't just me, of course, um, I was allowed to spend 24 hours in East Germany at a time, as long as I had an East Berlin address so that they could find me or contact me. And my friend Angela, the one who wrote the controversial newspaper article, asked a friend of hers who lived in East Berlin if I could use her address as my official kind of contact address. And she said, sure. And so I would travel over sometimes for 24 hours at a time over to East Berlin. But I learned to play the system and I would get a, a my friends would contact me and say, oh, come visit me in Dresden or come take this train and I'll meet you in Leipzig. And so I would travel all over uh, East Germany, quote unquote, illegally. I was supposed to stay within the environs of East Berlin, but I went many other places. And the way my friends contacted me, oh, is very various. Um, of course, sometimes uh, my we would arrange this when we saw each other. So let's say I went to East Berlin and we met at a museum. Part of the time, and often it would be an hour or two, we would simply discuss a calendar and what train I would take and where they would meet me three weeks from then or four weeks from then, because you had to arrange it very carefully. Um, Sometimes I would receive a telegram. This is the only time in my life I received telegrams. I had a kind of joke with my friends there. I said that in the United States, we telephone all the time, but we only send telegrams when someone dies. But telephones were very hard to come by for the average East German. And so my friend joked, joked that um, in East Germany, um, People sent telegrams all the time, but they only phoned when somebody died because it was a real emergency. <laughs> um, so I would receive a telegram from Angela saying, she'd say, you know, meet me in um, Dessau, at, on the, take the train that gets you there at 1324 in the afternoon. And so I would do this, um, even though I didn't have a visa saying I could go to a place like Dessau or Weimar or, or an, uh, another locale that was outside of East Berlin. Um, and I thought I was so clever. I, <laughs> I had a beret and <laughs> I actually bought an East Berlin uh, beret at one point um, from a department store on Alexanderplatz in East Berlin. But I also, I had a Western beret that I wore as well. I had as was typical for the late 1980s, I had huge horn-rimmed glasses, very late 80s glasses. I had a long, dark winter coat, and I thought, oh, I no one will know um, that I'm an American because I had this dark coat. I felt kind of like a spy. But of course, anyone looking at it could tell that it was a Western coat. 
And I had a little pink backpack that I used going, traveling all over. And (laughs) no one had a little pink backpack in East Germany. So even though I thought I was being so clever, um, I'm sure people noticed me and could tell that I was a Westerner. However, I was never stopped um, when I was traveling quote unquote, illegally through East Germany. I was stopped at the border once though, but that's a different story. And when you cross from West to East Berlin, you cross through Friedrichstrasse and the Palace of Tears. Yes. Sometimes. So when I crossed from, um, Oh, from East to West Berlin, um, then from, from West to East. Oh, from west to east. Sometimes I would use my American passport and go through Checkpoint Charlie because that was very close uh, to where I lived. Um, More often, I would go over as a West Berliner and I would cross at Friedrichstrasse. And um, one time, this was early January 1989, my boyfriend, now my husband, who was also a graduate student at Brown, uh, visited me, and we went over several times to East Berlin to meet my friends and to travel around. Um, and uh, it, when we went to Friedrichstrasse to cross over, I don't know why we did this in retrospect, but he, of course, had to go over as an American with his American passport, so he went in one line. But I went over as a West Berliner, as I typically did, um, with that identity card in a different line. And the way he tells it is he got through very easily um, and was waiting on the other side, and I never came out. And uh, he started um, talking to this uh, person next to him who turned out to be Croatian. They didn't speak a common language, but clearly this person was waiting for his friend as well who never came out who was stopped at the border. And what had happened was this. I had crossed over as a West... um, Berlin resident, and I was pulled aside and taken into this very small office. It had a table, a typewriter, and a chair, I think. And uh, they took my bag that I had with me and uh, examined what was in my bag. And again, even though I'd had my experiences in Rostock, I hadn't totally learned my lesson. I, um, I had with me several things. One of the things I had with me was the play script for the play by Arthur Miller, The Crucible, because I was in an English-speaking theater group in West Berlin at the Technical University, and we were putting on the play of The Crucible, and I had rehearsal that night, so I brought my playbook with me. And, of course, I thought it very ironic that they found this crucible play script of interest because, of course, um, uh, Arthur Miller wrote this in order to uh, criticize McCarthyism and uh, oppressing people, people being suspected of being communists and so on. So that was one problem. I had this play script. I had um, sealed envelopes. Um, I had Uh, A couple of weeks before this time, I had made one of my trips to Rostock to teach. And in those days, of course, there was no email. So I did what many people did at the time is I wrote letters. And these letters were really just very friendly thank you letters to the people who had hosted me um, at Rostock. So that included Kors who was the East German head, the person who was my handler, 
um, a number of the students I wrote. I wrote a couple of colleagues in that department, and they were totally innocent letters, really innocuous, I assure you. Um, but I had put them into, I had put the letters into envelopes and sealed the envelopes and addressed them. And I brought them over with me for the following reason. When you traveled from West Berlin to East Berlin, you had to trade Western money for East marks. And this again was to give East Germany hard currency, which they very badly needed. And so you had to exchange, I think it was about 30 marks. And I actually didn't mind doing it because um, you would spend some of the money on food, which was rather cheap. And I would use um, most of my money to buy books because they made very, uh, there was a wonderful book industry in East Germany and they made actually really beautiful medieval books. I'm a medievalist. Um, and so I would buy these books. Um, so I brought the sealed envelopes with me because I thought, oh, I can use some of this money I have to exchange. I could buy stamps using some of these East marks. And um, that will, and then I'll mail them in East Berlin, and they'll get to Rostock more quickly. That was my very innocent thought. Well, it turns out you cannot bring sealed envelopes into East Germany. And uh, I've in my Stasi file, there are photocopies of every single one of these innocuous, naive letters and the envelopes with all of the addresses on them. So there's, wow. uh, yeah, I know. So. That was that was the second problem I had in crossing the border. And the third was, and this really was dumb of me, I have to admit, um, I was supposed to send a telegram when I was in East Berlin to my friend Angela to tell her when my boyfriend and I would meet her. And I thought I was being so clever <laughs> by having her address on a little tiny slip of paper that I stuck in my play script, but not her name. Ugh. Wasn't that clever of me? Who would ever find this? Why didn't I memorize her address? Well, of course, the guards go through my play script and they find this little slip of paper, which is also photocopied and in my Stasi file. And it has my friend's address, but not her name. And she lived in an apartment building. So it could have been a number of people. And they kept asking me, and all of this was conducted in German because my German was quite good accented, but really pretty much fluent. And they said, whose address is this? And I said, ich weiß nicht, I don't know. And I just kept saying, ich weiß nicht. I played the dumb American in part. It was uh, uh, typecasting because I really was a dumb American at that particular <laughs> moment. Shame, shame. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, I just, if you just keep saying something, eventually they'll accept it, I guess. And I had a very young guard who was questioning me. In retrospect, and the way he wrote about me in the file, he was kind of not hitting on me, but kind of flirting with me. I was a young woman. I was friendly. He was a young man. I didn't think he wanted to, you know, totally destroy my life or anything. But he did have to take all of my stuff away. 
And he was gone about half an hour, 45 minutes, as I discovered later, was photocopying these items. Um, and uh, then um, I, I, he, he gave it back to me. One of the ironies of this is in my Stasi file, the um, report also states that they checked out the address and that the address I had was the address of a Protestant um, uh, rector or, or churchman. Um, but when I told, when I shared this with Angela, of course, this is years later, you know, maybe eight years ago, I shared this with her. She said, they got the address wrong. The Pro- Protestant rector lives, lived next door to my apartment building. It wasn't my apartment building. So they even got that wrong. So that's another lesson is that the Stasi was not all knowing and they often messed up quite a great deal. And the reason why the uh, Protestant rector was kind of a red flag for the, from the East German uh, government perspective was that a lot of the um, uh, resistance or opposition movements really had um, a home or a base and support within the church because the church was seen as oppositional to the repressive government. So I was seen as pretty sketchy there, I have to say. And then the other thing that the Stasi file claims is, um, uh, because of course, when I was questioned, I said, I'm meeting my boyfriend. He's, I presume he's waiting on the other side. Can you please let me go? And they said that he was an American soldier which was not true at all. He was a student of 18th century British literature, very far from being a military, part of the military. Um, And finally, I was released and I go over and um, we walk around uh, East Berlin and I feel very paranoid again at this moment. I suspect we're being followed. Somebody does come up to us asking to exchange money on the black market, which would happen periodically. People did this and you're always supposed to say no, needless to say. So this man did come up and ask us if we wanted to exchange money. We said no, but I have a feeling that this was kind of a setup in the wake of my being held at the border. And then um, while we were walking along, here's my boyfriend. He knows no one in East, East Germany. And suddenly he's saying, hey, how are you to this man? And I I think, who is he saying hi to? It turned out it was the Croatian fellow who was also waiting for his friend who had been held at the border and had been, like me, eventually released. So um, it was a, it, you know, that was a lesson that even when you're acting with goodwill and, and naivete or innocence, you could have, you could be held at the border what you have can be misinterpreted or even incorrectly um, uh, understood by um, supp- and a supposedly omniscient um, uh, power structure. Um, and for example, they had the address wrong where my friend lived and so on. And I wasn't a spy or anything like that. Um, I was just uh, a rather uh, perhaps naive young woman. So, you find yourself in Berlin in late 1989 and the rumblings are starting that changes afoot. How aware are you of these changes given that you're able to cross the border and, and where are you on the night that the wall actually falls? Yes, I was very aware of it. So um, 
uh, just to to tell maybe two stories leading up to the fall of the Berlin Wall. Um, in early September, I was uh, visiting friends in London, and a West Berlin friend of mine happened to be in London as well, and he offered to drive me back to to um, West Berlin because he lived in West Berlin. And so we met in London, we took the ferry over to the continent, and then we drove. And um, of course, you would drive through West Germany, and then you would hit the East German border before you could get to West Berlin. West Berlin, of course, was kind of the donut hole with the the donut itself being East Germany surrounding it. So we had to go through West West Germany, then East Germany to get to West Berlin. And uh, we crossed the border into East Germany. And uh, we were in my friend's kind of beat up old BMW. It was obviously a Western uh, car. And um, towards dusk, the East German uh, traffic police stopped us and said that his rear tail light was out, which was true. And because of this, we had to spend the night by the side of the highway um, until morning. We couldn't move. And it was the highway. It wasn't like a Autobahn or anything, but it was a busy highway. And we had to literally stay by the side of the highway. So anytime a car went by, our car shook. And we slept in the car all night, or barely slept, um, uh, waiting for um, the time when we could take off again, when it was light enough out. And in the morning, about 6 a.m., finally, my friend said, come on, this is ridiculous. Let's you know, continue um, going. And so we started up, but we were stopped again by the cops who said, oh, it's, um, uh, it's not light enough yet the sun isn't up. And I said to him, of course, in German, I said, when, when will the sun come up in East Germany? Which was kind of prescient if you think about it in a metaphorical way, because the sun was about to come up in East Germany within a few months. Um, I remember on that car trip, we were listening to reports, very moving reports, because there were a lot of East Germany's, Germans who had um, gone to um, east to West German embassies in East Bloc countries, like in um, uh, what was then Czechoslovakia and Hungary, and were able to make it over the border from there. Um, the people were put on trains and were able to flee East Germany, basically through a rather convoluted route by going to Czechoslovakia or Hungary and then getting into the um, West German embassies and making their way out. And so we were listening to these reports, and this already was quite extraordinary. Um, And then um, starting in uh, late September and October, there began these demonstrations, most famously in Leipzig. They happened all over, but the Leipzig ones are really the ones um, people mostly remember or were iconic. And um, they would be Monday night demonstrations um, where people chanted, um, we are the people, wir sind das Volk, we are the people. And um, at uh, particularly... Two two um, Mondays were particularly notable, I think, um, October 9th and October 16th. Um, uh, uh, October, uh, the weekend of um, October 7th and 8th, a friend of mine wanted me to meet her in East Berlin. 
Um, and I went over, uh, I went to Checkpoint Charlie to try to cross there, but the guard said, no one's allowed to cross today. It was a Sunday. I said, why can't I go over? And he said, we can't give out information at this time. So I went to Friedrichstrasse to cross over there, but there were cops at all the entrances and no one was allowed to go over into um, East Germany or East Berlin. And this was the day before the um, October 9th demonstration. Um, and there were rumors, which later I think were confirmed, that the army had been called out and people were afraid there would be bloodshed um, at the demonstration, in fact, a, a East German friend of mine um, contacted me on the uh, the day before the October 9th demonstration to say she was afraid there would be civil war in her country. Well, there was no bloodshed that night of um, October 9th. And then the following weekend, my friend from Leipzig um, met me and we traveled in East um, Germany to a little lake and went swimming. And she said, why don't you come tomorrow to the October 16th demonstration and join me? And um, I'll be honest, I was really afraid. I thought it would be another Tiananmen Square incident, which had taken place uh, only a few months earlier. And people were saying that, that they were afraid that there would be bloodshed. And um, so I was a coward, basically. I didn't go over that day um, to, to join the demonstration. But through people's goodwill, really, and some really courageous people like Court Mazur, the conductor, uh, I think a couple of politicians, and um, even uh, even a few po- these politicians. You know, you always think of politicians as always being bad in East Germany, but the order to shoot was not given. And two days later, Eric Honecker, the general secretary, ter- general secretary, the head of East Germany, resigned. So it was an extraordinary time in this mid-October. I mean, every, it seemed every day as though something new, something dramatic was taking place. And um, then, of course, November 9th is the night, Thursday night, um, when the wall finally, quote unquote, came down. And it was because I even have in my diary, I watched Actuella Camera um, and a news program where uh, the uh, East German politician, Schabowski, I think it was, made this announcement that the wall would open and he was asked when, and he said, well, something, something along the lines of mm, right away. And I was thinking in a very German way. I thought, oh, it's going to open up right away, but there's bureaucracy and it's going to take a while to set up how they're going to do the visas and so on. So I went to bed that night, even though I was about 300 meters from the wall, I went to bed um, very, very calmly. And I thought, excited, happy, but I thought it would take a while for the wall actually to quote unquote open. But that night, I got two calls in the middle of the night. One was from my British friend who had taught in East Germany in Rostock with me. And she said, oh, isn't this exciting? This is incredible. And I said, yeah, it's pretty exciting. And of course, she had been watching all of these news reports with people crossing the wall and champagne and, and oh, just total mayhem. And I didn't know what she was talking about. I just thought she meant, yes, it's an exciting time. Things are changing. But I 
really thought it was going to take, you know, a few more weeks or months. And then a couple of hours later, I got a call from an American friend of mine who had studied in uh, West Berlin with me. And she also said, wow, this is incredible. And again, I, it, it really didn't hit me until the next morning that the whole world had changed. And I was supposed to teach some little children English that afternoon. Um, I went to the class, but the parents said, oh, this is too exciting. Let's go to walk to the wall. And so I walked to the wall with them and the little kids. And it was just um, uh, miraculous. I, I was, you know, people crying. It was, it was incredible. But to me, the more um, remarkable incident was really uh, one that deals with my friend Angela again. I was, I had long planned with her to meet her um, that Sunday, the Sunday, as it turned out, after the Berlin Wall came down. This had been long planned. I was to meet her in the morning about 1030 um, at the Boda Museum on the Museum Island in East Berlin. And we were supposed to meet in the uh, cafe there, and then we would see art and walk around and talk and so on. And I kept expecting her between that Friday and that Sunday, I kept expecting her to show up at my apartment. So I didn't go out as much as I would normally have done because I kept thinking, oh, she's going to come here. This is... Um, her chance, you know, finally she can, I can host her. I don't have to rely on her hospitality. I wanted to be the host. Um, and she never came, she never called. And so I went as we had long planned to the Bodum Museum and I walked up these sweeping stairs to the, um, cafeteria at the, um, museum, very beautiful, uh, old style, um, cafe. And she was sitting there and she stood up and we embraced each other and just wept. It was, we just couldn't believe it. And she said she hadn't come over earlier because she had never been to the West and she was afraid. What was she afraid of? That she wouldn't be able to go back or that it would be so different? I think that it would be so different. It's the West was a place that that of course she'd seen images of, but she'd only heard tell of. Um, it would be like going almost to the moon or something. But when she did come over, you showed her the crosses that commemorate those who died trying to cross into West Berlin. What yes. was her reaction when she saw those? Yes. So we walked along the wall. We walked by the Reichstag, which is on the western side by Brandenburg Gate. And right there, and they're still there, um, by the Reichstag, there are crosses in honor of, in memory of people who had crossed, try, attempted to escape East Germany and had been shot or uh, killed um, trying to come over. And so these crosses would have their names and uh, their stories there. And when she saw this, again, she cried. She had never known about it because no one in East Germany, uh, people hadn't been taught about these um, killings. Of course, we knew about them in the West. They were famous in the West. It, they were signs of the inhumanity of East Germany. But this was not common knowledge in East Germany, and she couldn't believe it. She she cried, and um, then 
eventually we made our way to my apartment. And I remember feeling a bit ashamed because my apartment was nothing special. It was even a little shabby, you know, it's a grad student apartment, but she kept exclaiming about how wonderful this was or that was some appliance. And I just felt ashamed because I thought to me, this is nothing. It's not even that, that special, but to her either it really did seem um, better than something she could have gotten in East Germany or, um, or it seemed better because it was Western and therefore had to be better than what was found in East Germany. A hard adaption for you both, perhaps. But yeah. in, the media, yes. in, in the immediate aftermath of the fall of the wall, what are your thoughts and impressions on the future of Germany? Yeah. Um, so in the immediate aftermath, I think one of the um, uh, sort of slogans that best sums up some of the changes is the in the October demonstrations, people chanted, Via sind das Volk, we are the people, meaning they had a voice they wanted to um, be heard and uh, that the East German government to hear them. But rapidly those chants and the demonstrations continued. The, the chance became, wir sind ein Volk, we are one people. And this is where the sort of, uh, I would say, uh, general uh, populace, many people wanted to become one with West Germany. So reunification was talked about. And of course, the West German government very much wanted to promote reunification. And I would say the majority of people in East Germany did want to have reunification. But that, and that's kind of the story that is told, um, certainly in the United States, that it was inevitable and it was a good thing that, um, that East Germany should disappear and become part of West Germany. That's part of the natural arc of history. That's kind of the story that's often relayed. But my personal experience with um, my friends in East Germany tells a different story. And granted, I dealt with mainly academics and intellectuals. So it's not uh, perhaps a, a standard story that you might hear. But many of the people I knew did not want to become part of West Germany, which they thought was a corrupt capitalistic um, society. They wanted to create um, their own truly democratic socialist nation. Instead of being a repressive government, they wanted to um, uh, retain their independence from uh, West Germany, stay their own independent country, but become a better country, a, a truly democratic one. And those voices were really drowned out in the kind of, um, I don't want to say hysteria, but the enthusiasm and uh, f- for becoming part of the West. In fact, I remember there was a cigarette called West, West Cigarettes, and the advertisement was Test the West. And it seemed like everything was conspiring to have East Germany become part of West Germany. I had noticed at the time as well that the political cartoons about um, uh, 
what was happening in the German press and the English language press, both U.S. and uh, British uh, newspapers, almost always anthropomorphized the countries in terms of gender. That is to say, if there was a political cartoon depicting East and West Germany, East Germany was always depicted as female and West Germany as male. And then, of course, the metaphor of marriage was used, and it seemed inevitable that East Germany should marry West Germany and, of course, lose its name and its identity. Um, And so um, I went to uh, a number of uh, uh, demonstrations. For example, I went back to Rostock in, I think it was February of 1990, and Helmut Kohl came to speak, the, the West German chancellor. And um, he was talking about reunification and there were many people supporting him, but there were also some people there who did not want to become part of West uh, Germany. And when I read the reports in the newspaper the next day, no one mentioned those people carrying signs saying they wanted to retain their own independence. Um, Really the whole press seemed, um, or most of the press seemed geared toward um, promoting this one, um, uh, sort of, quote unquote, inevitable narrative that um, there would be unification. And uh, as the the process of reunification starts, that loss of the GDR and the loss of the identity of the GDR, how did your friends in the country feel about that? Oh, um, they they were saddened by it. Obviously, they didn't. They weren't sad to lose the Stasi or. Um, the oppressive government, or um, they were not sad to lose being kept behind a wall. They were not sad to see the wall go. But imagine losing your country. Uh, I'm uh, in my generation. That's unimaginable. I, um, but people have experienced this in different ways throughout the world. Um, sometimes you're happy to lose your country if it's a really bad one. But in this case, um, people, um, particularly the feminist scholars I knew and feminist thinkers, um, said there are a lot of advantages to the East German uh, tradition. There was um, universal childcare, women worked, which was, you know, that was seen as a point of pride for these women. Um, uh, there were things that they were worried about losing. And in in fact, one of the sort of bizarre stories, I think, again, it was in February of 1990. There's a kind of strange story that came out of this. Things were changing so rapidly. And my friend in Leipzig worked with a feminist uh, consortium that kind of um, sprang up in the wake of uh, the October demonstrations and then the fall of the Berlin Wall. And Right after the fall of the Berlin Wall, within the next month, the Stasi buildings, the files were attacked. Some of them were destroyed, sometimes by the Stasi themselves, I believe, um, and sometimes by people whose uh, own files were in there. And uh, so there was quite a lot of chaos. Um, But in Leipzig, at least, the um, city government um, ended up confiscating cars that had been used by the Stasi and allocating them to various um, 
organizations that needed to have cars. So you could make a request, you could fill out paperwork and say, my organization needs a car. And her organization was this feminist feminist initiative. And so they actually were um, loaned, I don't think they were given, but they were at least loaned the use of a Stasi car, a former Stasi car. And uh, which is just very strange. I mean, it was within two months or three months before it had been a Stasi car used for surveillance. And then suddenly these feminist um, uh, thinkers got it. And I remember, you know, she she picked me up in, in Berlin and we went off to Rügen, which is this beautiful island in the north of Germany in this Stasi car. And it was like, how how could this have taken place? Um, so there were incidents like that that made you think, that you were in some surreal um, universe suddenly, simply because even the people with the highest hopes about change in East Germany never expected the events to unfold the way that they ended up unfolding. Certainly that story of the Stasi car and the feminist group is a fantastic <laughs> juxtaposition <laughs> of old and new in, uh, in, in Germany at the time. Yes, <laughs> Now, you then go and apply to see your Stasi file. How did you do that? And and what did you find? Okay, so um, I never actually went to the building where my file was held. Everything I did uh, via post. And so, um, you know, if if someone listening to this thinks they have a Stasi file, you can apply to uh, various government organizations that will then send you your file. So I did this in the mid-90s once it became clear that um, this possibility did exist. And I got part of my Stasi file at that time. It was mailed to me about a year after I made the application. And then um, a number of years later, I asked to see asked if there was anything else in my file. And um, you could make a special request to find out who had written the reports about me. And in fact, that's that's when I discovered that one of the two people who had reported on me was Horst, my boss in East Germany. And again, um, I shouldn't have been surprised at that. I wasn't really surprised that he was one of the people um, because he was sort of really nominally in charge of me. Um, But again, um, the things that he said with the newspaper incident, for example, were couched in relatively good terms. He praised my ability of getting along with people. Um, He said I was a very good teacher. Um, and, uh, he also said that I had contact with the American embassy, as did my, the other report about me. And more I've read, about, read around about this is I think it's something that is meant to sound suspicious. Oh, she has contact with the American embassy, um, which is kind of code for, Ooh, maybe she's a spy for the Americans. Um, in order to just say something so that the Stasi would think, oh, this is, uh, he's really giving us some hot stuff here. Um, because he was one of many what are called unofficial uh, collaborators. Um, so not a Stasi uh, official himself, but one of the people used by the Stasi to report on other people. Um, he also made comments about my family's financial status, for example, that my parents had bought my brother's cars. 
I mean, these were old junkie cars my parents had brought my brothers. I mean, it wasn't like something fancy, but he included material like that, I think, because um, uh, it would indicate uh, or sort of fulfill expectations about uh, Americans um, and their their wealth status in a capitalist system. So he mentioned that as well. Of course, I did have contact with the American embassy because I had to go there when I posted my absentee ballot, but that was nothing suspicious at all. And many people have contact with the American embassy. If you're American, that has nothing to do with being a spy, but it was included in uh, what he wrote. Um, uh, But I think it's more of a, almost a generic um, sentence that was included. Now, I think we're going to be able to put some of the pictures of your file, some of your ID cards and other articles of your time in, in Germany uh, in the show notes, aren't we? Yes. Yes. So there's an article um, that I wrote specifically about the wall newspaper. And so there are images of um, a couple of the articles my students wrote looking back, they're not very subversive at all, but were seen as suspicious at the time. There's um, more information about the Stasi file there and who reported on me. One of the articles um, is about the political cartoons um, where East Germany is depicted as female and West Germany as male. And then I also worked on um, uh, an article uh, on feminist theory with an East German scholar from Rostock. Um, so this was possible at the time. In fact, it was even approved of that there would be scholarly collaboration between Westerners, Western academics, and East German academics. In a way, it was a kind of um, uh, status symbol for Rostock that it had this um, American and British uh, Uh, connection to universities. And so uh, collaborations of this kind were encouraged and feminist theory was uh, not looked down upon. That was seen as something that worked within uh, the ideology of East Germany. Although of course it's very uh, complex. Uh, It wasn't like a feminist haven, believe me. Um, But I would go over sometimes and stay with this friend of mine, uh, uh, the feminist academic, and we would work on this article. And that was approved of also by um, uh, the government. And it was also facilitated specifically by Horst, who was reporting on me, because he would be the person who would um, enable me to get the visa to come over for several days at a time. In comparison with the West, who was more advanced in terms of equality between the genders? East or West? (laughs) Oh, that's such a difficult um, question. I mean, it was still an intensely patriarchal society. um, But having either free or very cheap, I can't remember, one or the other, childcare made a huge difference to women's lives. Um, I think structurally, though, to advance in society as as it is most most places, um, it was still more difficult for women than men. Um, but uh, just having something in place like free or very cheap childcare made a huge difference for women. And I think um, having many women worked and then with the 
fall of the wall and unification. Many of those women and men lost jobs, but I think it was more women who suffered typically in terms of not being able to get back into the workforce as I understand it. So yeah, it's not, it wasn't like a feminist dreamland at all, but there were some things that the government did do that were helpful for uh, women. On the other hand, most people married at a very early age, in their early 20s, and began having children quite quickly. And that also changes, well, it, it can be good or bad, but it changes your opportunities and um, the kind of life that you'll have. Um, and it wasn't as though people couldn't travel. People could travel within the Soviet bloc, but um, you know, one of the standard things for many um, in the West at the time might be to go on a backpacking trip through Europe, Western Europe, typically. Um, people in the East would go on bicycle trips or, or backpacking, but in the, in the East Bloc. Um, but if you marry and if you're married in your early to mid 20s and have kids, that kind of changes the trajectory that your life will have. So um, I think both both the East and the West have uh, uh, gender problems, gender problematics. Um, but it would, but it, that's another thing that was lost with um, unification. It was like everything from East Germany was uh, considered "quote unquote" bad. But there could have been some things that people learned from the East that the West could have learned from the East, such as childcare issues. Um, and that wasn't possible at the time. Susan, thank you very much indeed for your time today to come and talk to Cold War Conversations. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for asking me. It was, it was a real joy to talk to you. And we have further photos, videos and information on this episode in our show notes, which will show as a link in your podcast app. Don't forget, if you'd like to get one of those Cold War Conversations coasters help keep us on the air, then head over to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. And if you can't wait for the next episode, do visit our Facebook discussion group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War Conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye.
not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.